You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. So if you have your Bibles with you and want to turn to uh, John chapter 3, um, or if you have another device that you read after Scripture, you can turn there. We'll be reading there in just a, a moment. Who can tell me what happens two months from now, February 4th, 2022? Anybody? No? Close. That's the next weekend. But you're on the right, you're on a good track there. Someone else? It's the opening ceremonies for the Winter Olympics in Beijing. And so for the next, uh, February 4th and for the next 16 days, um, the world's best athletes in winter sports. There's 109 events across seven different sports. They'll all be gathering in Beijing. Unless, obviously, politics get involved, which is talk about. But anyway, I, I don't know about you, but I have an incredible amount of admiration for Olympic athletes. I mean, that's all they do is train, 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 and it, it consumes their life. And for many of them, they're for sports where the, the difference between first place and 20th place is a second or less. They're just, and so they train and train for just this microsecond sometimes of trying to succeed and be the best at that. The commitment that's required, just the years and years of practice, they give up the idea of a social life. Relationships are put away, all for the sake of this one goal of focusing to be the best in a particular sport. I really, I really do have a lot of admiration for these athletes, and I suspect you do as well. And yet, what's interesting is while you and I are watching these sports, these athletes, and we have a lot of admiration, somewhere watching this same event, there's boys and girls watching this, and as they're watching it, something triggers within them. And they're not watching with admiration. They're watching and they said, I want to do that. Or that even as they progress, they're thinking, they said, I can do that. And so they go and talk to mom and dad and they get signed up for lessons and mom and dad aren't sure what to think about that because that's a whole other thing and that they need to do. But they start doing the things they need to do to become like the person that they saw on TV. They start doing the things they need to do to become a great athlete. See, they're not just an admirer of an athlete. They become a follower of that athlete. They start studying that athlete. They start copying their training habits. And they start modeling their techniques as to what they do. They do the things that they do, this other Olympian does, in order that they can also become great in that particular sport. There's a really, really big difference between an admirer of somebody and a follower of somebody. And that difference between admiring and following is at the core of my talk here this morning. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to John chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, um, if you have a, uh, another device, you can do that, or you can always follow along on the screen as well. John 3, start with verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. 
Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for, um, for your word. I thank you for all that you're doing. Um, and for this example of Nicodemus, who, um, by all we can tell, is doing something really good. He's coming to Jesus, acknowledging, recognizing. Yet we also get this sense from Jesus' response that there's something missing. There's some gap in Nicodemus' understanding. So, Lord, as we unwrap this a little bit, I ask that you would help me to communicate clearly. And, Father, your spirit would speak to each of us and say what we need to hear. And so, Father, I do this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you recall from the previous um, Encountered by Jesus stories, we looked at here the last few weeks, um, most of the people that we looked at in those stories were only known in the Bible through that one story. You know, the first week we looked at Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, we know that he, we knew his name because we're given it to him. We also know that he was a tax collector. And we also know that he was short because we have a song about him that references that. But, but we never heard of Zacchaeus before that moment with Jesus, and we never hear of Zacchaeus again. It was just that, that little window of opportunities, all we hear of Zacchaeus. And also, this, the next week we, talked, we looked at this woman whose son had died, and she was a widow, so her whole future was in doubt, and her whole ability to sustain. So we don't even know her name. We don't know anything about her. We don't know her age. All we know that she was a widow, and now her only son has died. And we never hear about this woman again. There's, there was just that little window that we hear. And then the next week we, we talked about ten lepers who were healed, and one came back to give thanks and appreciation. There, none of them, we don't know the names of any one of them. We have no information about them, their life, their, their family situations, nothing. And those ten we never hear about again. There's no reference to any of them again. In this encounter with Jesus, we now know a name. We know the name is Nicodemus. And we also know that Nicodemus was a religious man. And that we know that he was a Pharisee. Um, There's two primary religious groups within Israel at that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, The Sadducees were a little bit more on the legal side of things. They had a little bit more of the political power. They were more in line with Rome. The Pharisees um, were, weren't um, in that room. But we also know that he was also a member of the ruling council, which we know to be the, what was referred to as the Sanhedrin. Um, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus was an Old Testament scholar. I mean, they, they knew the Old Testament inside and out, and they were fiercely, fiercely committed to keeping the Jewish laws and traditions 
in order to see God's kingdom come through the Messiah. They believe that if we follow the laws of God, the Messiah will come. And so the quicker we can get everything in order, then the best, the better we can do with following the laws, and let's add more laws because maybe he'll come quicker. And, but there was, there's a relationship between their following the law and the coming Messiah. Nicodemus was one of these guys. And as a member of the Jewish ruling council of the Sanhedrin, that group was a ruling group that consisted of 70 men from, represented from both the Pharisees and Sadducees. I don't know that if it was a 50-50 split or what it looked like, but both groups were represented. Um, and then there was a, a chief um, priest, if you will, who broke any ties. But this group, this 70 men, they made up the supreme Jewish legislative and judicial court for all Israel. So consider, put, if in our country, you put Congress and the Supreme Court together into one ruling body, and you got a big mess. Okay? But there, this is the way it worked. You had one group of 70 men who they, not just legally, but also religiously, um, the, the laws, everything was through these 70 men. Now, there are also local Sanhedrins or courts, you know, at the local level, smaller groups. But because of the way this story is told and what we know about Nicodemus um, and other places, that he was one of the 70. So he was part of the larger group. Remember, the Sanhedrin is the group, is the body that wants Jesus dead. It's this group that is putting all the political, um, and, and even not just political, but legal, and everything they can do to, to arrest Jesus and have him killed. It's this group among which Nicodemus is one. Now, re- recall that in previous encounter stories that you know we never hear from this person again. Well, we hear about Nicodemus again. In fact, we hear about Nicodemus two more times after this story. The next time we hear about Nicodemus is in John chapter 7, so just four chapters after this story here. The Sanhedrin is trying to arrest Jesus. In fact, they send out the temple guards to go arrest him, bring him in, go get him. And the guards come back empty-handed, and they said, there's, there's no way. The, the, no one's like this guy. You know, the guards basically said, we can't arrest him. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And so they're all up in, you know, up in arms as to what to do. And Nicodemus speaks up in John chapter 7. He says, in essence, this is me paraphrasing, he said, give Jesus a chance. Hey, isn't it our law that only someone from God can do what Jesus is doing? And they immediately shut him down. They essentially insulted him. They accused him of actually being a follower of Jesus, which was not a good thing in that moment. And they shut him down immediately. So we know that Nicodemus, he was a religious man. We also know that Nicodemus was a respected man. In that time, in that culture, in that day and age, Nicodemus was at the top. He was one of 70. I mean, he was there. He had arrived. Whatever his aspirations were as a young boy, he had realized them by this point in time. He had power. He had prestige. He had wealth. He had everything. And yet... With all of this at his disposal, Nicodemus found himself in a bit of a pickle. Some say that Nicodemus was a restless man, that he came to Jesus searching for answers. And some say he was a reluctant man, that he had questions, you know, how can an old man change? I would like to suggest this morning, I would like to suggest that Nicodemus wasn't, I'm sorry, he wasn't restless, he was hopeful. Notice that Nicodemus refers to Jesus as a rabbi. He says, rabbi, teacher, a teacher come from God. 
The fact is, and he comes by one of the reasons why we think he came at nighttime, because this was a huge political risk for him. If it was discovered that he came to Jesus, was associating with Jesus, it could put his future at risk as well. But he was hopeful. He recognized that there was something about Jesus that was different. Similarly, I don't think Nicodemus was reluctant. I think he was just confused. Now, to be clear, Nicodemus was a great admirer of Jesus. And therein lies the problem. Jesus never asked people to admire him. He asked only for people to follow him. Who, um, I learned a new word this week. I never heard this word until this week as I was working through this. Funambulist. Anybody know what it is? It's a great word. Tightrope walker. Uh, who knew? <laughs> Something that the greatest tightrope walker of all time was a guy. He was a French, um, 34-year-old French acrobat named Charles Blondin. Any name sound familiar in your history? Um, he, uh, he lived in the 1800s. And Charles Blondin came over from France, and he was obsessed with crossing the gorge across Niagara Falls. Um, and then, so in 1859, uh, he had a manager, they marketed, they advertised, and they anticipated that there were like some like 25,000 people show up to watch this crazy guy kill himself trying to walk across the rope across Niagara Falls. And the rope, the cable was 1,300 feet long, was two inches in diameter, and he walked across. Now, it was estimated that cumulatively he walked across that rope more than 300 times. One time he walked blindfolded. Another time he walked backwards. One time in the middle of the thing, he did a flip. Um, another time, you remember back in, you've seen these pictures of the cameras back in the 1850s, the Civil War type of thing, the big box on a tripod type thing. He put one on his back walked out across the rope into the middle, stopped, took the camera off his back, took a picture of the crowd watching him, put the camera back in his back and kept going and finished it. They even said that one time he carried out a small little stove, made an omelet, and then dropped it down on a plate to the boat that was underneath him so that somebody could have breakfast. Um, he really was an interesting guy, to say the least. One time he even convinced his manager to get on his back, and he carried him across the rope on, with him on his back. The story goes that one day a group of dignitaries were watching him do this. And again, he did this over many times over the course of, of I don't know, for days, weeks, months. But this time he was pushing a wheelbarrow across it, the rope. Again, just something different. And so when he gets to the other side, he's talking to the group there, and he says, do you believe that I can take a man across this tightrope in a wheelbarrow. And the man he was talking to says, sure, absolutely, I believe you can do that. To which Blondine says, get in. <laughs> to no one's surprise, the man declined. See, the man believed Blondine could do it, but there's no way that he was willing to trust him with his life. The man was an admirer of Blondine, he wasn't a follower. 
Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, I know you're a great man of God. And Jesus says, I am so much more than that. And Nicodemus, you need to stop thinking that God's kingdom can be obtained by doing and saying the right things. You must be born of the Spirit. In one sentence, in just that one little conversation, that one sentence, Jesus sweeps away everything Nicodemus believed and stood for by insisting that neither heredity, that religion, nor human effort, none of those things could obtain salvation from God. Only when we're born of the Spirit, only when we have been born again, is the word that's used there in that passage. Eternal life is way beyond religion and human effort. Eternal life comes from the Spirit. But Nicodemus continued to look at things as he always did, and he questioned Jesus because, again, he could look at things only from the physical sense, the natural sense, not the spiritual sense, and he was confused. Ultimately, Jesus said to Nicodemus, I don't need admirers, I want followers. You have to make a choice, Nicodemus. Now we know ultimately Nicodemus does. He does make the choice. The last time we hear about Nicodemus in the Bible is after Jesus was killed on the cross. In John chapter 19, it it reads this. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. So Jesus is still on the cross. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Hear this. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus that night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. When Jesus dies... At this point in time, we don't know at one point in time this happened, but somewhere along the way, Nicodemus understood. The light clicked on for him, and he now became not an admirer of Jesus, but a follower of Jesus because this action here was in broad daylight. What he did here was known to everyone. His reputation, if it was going to get ruined, was going to get ruined. Jesus, same thing as he said to Nicodemus, you have to make a choice. He says the same thing to us. He says, are you willing to follow me? Will you surrender every area of your life to me? Are you willing to get into the wheelbarrow? Now, let me be clear about what goes into the wheelbarrow. All of our past, all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our pain, Everything, every time we've fallen short, all of that yucky stuff goes in the wheelbarrow. We no longer have to carry it. Jesus is the one who will carry it. But in addition to all that, and we like all that, we're good with that. But also into the wheelbarrow goes not just our past, but also our future. All of our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, all of our right all of our wants, all the things that we aspire to, all of it goes into the wheelbarrow as well. Jesus gets all of it. We have a choice. 
Nicodemus going to see Jesus during the night can be seen as a metaphor for times of difficulty and hardship. So similarly, choose to go to Jesus in our dark night. Going to Jesus shouldn't be a last resort. Going to Jesus should be the first thing we do at the very first sign of difficulty and trouble. Choose to understand that Jesus sees past our behavior and into our heart. Choose to acknowledge that he knows what we need better than ourselves. And choose a relationship with Jesus over our empty religious activities for him. We have a choice. We can stand at a distance marveling at the wonder of Jesus, or we can get in the wheelbarrow and hold on for the ride of a lifetime. Now, why would you not give your full devotion to Jesus? Notice, Jesus never presented himself as a good spiritual teacher, someone that we could admire from a distance. Jesus always presented himself as master and Lord, and as one to be followed and served and obeyed and worshipped. That's no other way. That's who he is. He's it. So one of the questions we might ask ourselves, or some might ask ourselves, is how does one know if they've been born again? How does, what does that look like? Nicodemus thought he was doing all the right things, so what would be different? I think there are some things that we can see that are signs, if you will, of a spiritual rebirth. I think one of those is that there's a genuine acknowledgement of sorrow over our sin and the recognition that we need a Savior. Recognizing that we need God is the first Sign, if you will, that we have been or are being born again. There's also a genuine entrusting of ourselves to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord that endures throughout our life. It's not a one-time thing. It's not like, all right, I'm giving my life to Jesus today and I'm picking everything back up tomorrow and doing my own thing. It's a lifelong um, commitment and it's a lifelong and sometimes daily practice of entrusting Jesus with everything and all aspects of our life. I think another sign is that there's a genuine love of Jesus that motivates our obedience and deepens throughout our life. Again, it's not a one-time thing where we're in trouble and we need him to bail us out. And so we come to Jesus like kind of our spiritual Santa Claus or tooth fairy or genie that we can make a wish and hopefully comes in as we engage Jesus, as we get in the wheelbarrow and become his follower, we realize there's a whole lot more to Jesus than we ever thought or knew about. That ongoing life of devotion, that ongoing life of following, of pursuing him, leaves us with this deepened sense of love and passion for him. Those of us who have been married and have found that person that, especially those of us, I think, who've been married for long periods of time, we recognize you know, we love that person probably more today than we did 38 years ago for us. It doesn't seem possible because I remember at the time thinking it doesn't get any better than this. But it does. And I think it's the same thing with Jesus, that the more we know, the more we spend time with him, the deeper that love becomes. What's interesting for me is that probably the most popular verse in the Bible, what do you think it would be? John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We forget sometimes that Jesus is the one speaking these words. Jesus is talking about himself. Jesus is speaking these words in his conversation with Nicodemus. That conversation with Nicodemus wasn't just for Nicodemus, it was for all of us. It was for all of us. I'm so glad that John was able to capture that conversation. Um, makes me wonder how. Was it to sit down with Nicodemus afterwards? What happened? How did he find out about the details of this? Because it transforms lives today. 2,000 years later, those words are still having impact on people. Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus changed his life forever because he was willing to get into the wheelbarrow, because he was willing to trust Jesus with all of his heart. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, for your willingness not to get caught up in all the admiration. That's just such a human thing. We love, we do, we, we love it when people appreciate us. And it's not necessarily even an arrogant thing. We just, we just feel valued and it resonates with us as humans. But Jesus, you never got caught up with that. And Nicodemus is coming uh, to him and here's a, a significant leader in an entire country. And yet in that moment, you saw into Nicodemus' heart and not hearing the words, you saw what he needed, not necessarily what he was offering. God, I'm grateful that you continue to see us that way as well. You, you don't necessarily respond to what we might say or even what we might do because you see in our hearts and you know what's there and you know what's not there and you know what's missing. And Father, my prayer is that if there's any of us here this morning that are wrestling with this idea of admiring you and following you, that there would be this decision first and foremost, once and for all, of, being, of surrendering our life to you. That there would be no hesitation that with, that with this invitation we would get into the wheelbarrow. Lord, uh, what an adventure. What a story. The stories that we can tell when we follow you. So Lord, for anyone here who's hesitant, I pray, Lord, that you would place that conviction within their heart. For those who might be uncertain, Father, for those who might be yet unwilling, Lord, may they come to a place where they recognize that there really aren't, although we do have a choice, there, aren't a, there isn't a better option. So, Lord, that we would once and for all surrender our hearts and our lives to you. So, Father, we do this in the name of your Son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. So my prayer for all of us is that as we continue in this holiday season, we're conscious of that call to follow. It's a daily call. It's a daily call. Follow me. Follow me. I wish it was a once once and done thing, but we're human. You know, it's the same reason saying that when we're, we're the Spirit fills us and we're empowered and that it's a continual feeling. And the reason is, is because we leak. You know, we do, we leak. Our humanness um, gets in the way. So this season, 
may be one where we're conscious of the call to follow Jesus. And may we be unhesitant as we would follow him. Amen? Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.